You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, on Good Friday of Holy Week, we zero in on the death of Jesus. And tonight we're going to consider Matthew's account of Jesus' death. And we're going to look at that part of his text that focuses really on the, the moment uh, that Jesus dies. Our text is Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 54. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the worship folder. And I'm going to ask you one more time, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. And now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It's God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth now and the thoughts of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you as we hear from you through your inspired and inerrant word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it doesn't look like it, but this is Skull Hill. Uh, I mean, it is Skull Hill. It doesn't look like holy ground. But it is holy ground. It's an awful place, just outside of Jerusalem. Place of death. Last week... Did a memorial service right here for one of our beloved members. Reflecting on death. Death has a way of sobering us, doesn't it? Of uh, making us think. It helps us to realign our priorities and to remember what's really important. And if that's true of death in general, it is especially true of the death of the Son of God. And so to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper tonight, we're going to consider 
in summary fashion, five details that, that Matthew reveals about Jesus' death on that Good Friday. And the, here are the five details. The, the darkness, the cry, the veil, the quake, and the rising. Okay? The raising, excuse me. So the, the darkness, the cry, the veil, the quake, and the raising. First, the darkness. Jesus' crucifixion was accompanied by an eerie and supernatural darkness from noon until 3 p.m. Right? The, the point of the day, the sun is the highest, uh, the land, the whole earth was thrown into darkness. What was the meaning of that? What is darkness? What is this darkness? three-hour darkness while Jesus is hanging on the cross. What does that mean? Well, if you interpret it as we should by, by reference to God's word, we, you, you see that God's word everywhere associates darkness with judgment. Right? And there is no clearer statement of that association between darkness and judgment than from the prophet Amos, speaking centuries before Jesus' crucifixion. And Amos is looking, as a prophet, down the halls of time and prophesying about a future judgment of the Lord And here's what he says in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and end it like a bitter day. Isn't that a remarkable prophecy? certainly finds a, a great fulfillment, doesn't it, in, in, the, in the death of Jesus, here forecasted in the Old Testament centuries before uh, it happened. But if the darkness means judgment, uh, I guess that the question is, is, is it only then a bitter day? Is it only about mourning? and bitterness. Well, no. I mean, if that were true, we wouldn't call it Good Friday. There is a light in the darkness. To understand it, to get a glimpse of that light in the darkness of God's judgment, you ought to think back even further into history, back to God's liberation of the Hebrew people from Egypt, the Exodus, right? Remember, they were liberated through a series of plagues that God inflicted on Egypt. And the last plague that was the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in Egypt would die. But the Hebrew people were saved from that judgment. How? By the blood of lambs that each family sacrificed in their home in their homes, and, and then took that blood and smeared it on the door frames of their houses. Question is, do you remember what the plague was right before 
the plague of the death of the firstborn. Right before the first Passover. It was the plague of darkness. Darkness had descended, a supernatural darkness had descended on Egypt, signaling the coming of a serious judgment, a divine judgment, but not a judgment from which there was no escape. God did provide an escape through the sacrificial death of an innocent substitute, those Passover lambs. And so it is with Good Friday, right? Good Friday is, as we, as we know from the signaling of the darkness, it's a day of judgment. God's judgment was poured out that day. But if you're trusting in the sacrificial death of an innocent substitute, if you're trusting in the one who was who was signaled by those Passover lambs, if you're trusting in the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, then you are mercifully delivered from that judgment. How? Not by God changing his mind. No, the just God pours out his judgment on Jesus, on the cross, instead of on you. So that's, that's the first detail, the darkness. And now let's look at the cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the fact that these words are recorded at all is evidence of the historical accuracy of the gospel accounts of Jesus' death because uh, isn't it true that this, that at, at least at first blush when you hear this, it used to confuse me for a long time it, because it's an embarrassment. I mean, at, the, it, at first blush, it, it, it sounds like Jesus is finally waking up on the cross to the fact that he wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't who he thought he was. That he was just a pathetic, deluded, and now in a moment dying man with the Messiah complex. Critics of Christianity will tell you that the gospel accounts were written long after uh, the events of Jesus' life, uh, and they were uh, drafted uh, to create an institution, right? To create a a power base, uh, and 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 so they they crafted these stories about Jesus in order to unite people in this in this. Uh, institution of the church this power platform well if now of course that's not true but the reality is if you were making up christianity if that's what you were doing uh, would you put these words in jesus mouth you wouldn't do that even though you know he was quoting psalm 22 and and boy there's a sermon right a whole sermon right there about how how the what the meaning of Jesus quoting Psalm 22 means, um, you would never have him speak those words if you were trying to create this myth. Um, But since they're there, it must be that Jesus said them. Now, 
Of course, the embarrassment's only on a first blush, right? Because as you reflect on Jesus' words, as he owns Psalm 22, uh, those words reveal so much. I mean, they become just a, a storehouse of, of wonder and, and beauty and, and grace. Uh, they certainly reveal the depth of what Jesus Christ experienced in order to make you his friend, to make you his brother or sister, to reconcile you to the living God, to save you from God's judgment. You know, if a friend of mine said he wanted nothing more to do with me, that would hurt. I would be uh, hurt and upset. But if my wife Linda said she didn't want to have anything more to do with me, I would be crushed. I wouldn't be able to function. The closer the relationship, the deeper the hurt. And maybe the closest thing to hell on earth is to be forsaken, rejected, abandoned by one you love. Some of you know what that hell is like. That cry tells us that Jesus experienced that hell for you. That cry of Jesus here tells you that that Jesus fully took on your judgment, every part of that judgment, down to its last drop. He took it to the ultimate hell point of being forsaken by the living God, his own Father. But there's, that means that there is nothing left for you to account for. There is nothing left for you to do to atone, right? Because Jesus took and paid for all your failures, all your half-heartedness, all your doubts, all your guilt, all your shame, all your sins. Friends, it's all nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Two practical takeaways here from the cry. First, you know, Matthew goes for a long time about the, the, the wrong reaction to Jesus' cry. People supposed he was calling on Elijah to save him. That shows you that Jesus, even moments from the end of his earthly ministry, was and continues to be to this to, to today misunderstood. The world misunderstands Jesus. The world misunderstands his gospel. And it, since that's true, it will also be true of you. If you are faithfully following Jesus, uh, you will also be misunderstood. Your actions, your words, your commitments, your priorities, all of it will be misunderstood. But take heart, take heart, right? It happened to Jesus, following in his footsteps, and God, by his spirit, can and does break through that misunderstanding. Keep hanging on. 
And second, Jesus' cry here shows us how you and I sometimes experience faith. And Jesus' cry, as desperate as it was, was a cry of faith. If he had said, you know, hanging there on the cross, looking out over the people who were uh, gaping at him, watching him die, and he said, my people, my people, why has God forsaken me? That would be a cry of unbelief, wouldn't it? But instead, Jesus said, my God, my God, why has God, how, why have you forsaken me? You see, and in that moment, Jesus shows us what faith at its deepest often looks like. And it looks like believing God, calling on God, even when you don't feel him. Even when it seems like you're crying to an empty room. And so Christian, be encouraged. I know that there are times when that's how your faith feels. But Jesus knows that. He knows what you're feeling. He's been there. And though he wasn't feeling his father, who was forsaking him because he was bearing your sin. you can also confidently pray, knowing that even though you may not be feeling him, he's there, he's listening, he's hearing, he's answering. So hang on, hang on. Third, the veil. That's that high, thick curtain, right, that, that separates the, uh, and keeps people out of the Holy of Holies, the place where God is actually present in the temple. And it was ripped in two from top to bottom the moment that Jesus died, showing us uh, by the way it happened, its source, right, from above. And the whole ripping of the of the to the temple veil is, is such an eloquent sign. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that really preaches itself. It's, it's self-explanatory. It, it's, it says so much, right? It, it says that the temple had run its course. The reality that the temple and all of its rituals pointed forward to for centuries that reality had finally shown up in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ showed up, he opened up a new and the only way to the living God through his torn body on the cross. And now, access to God is open to everyone. Men, women, Boys, girls, Jew, Gentile, people of every tribe and tongue around the world have access to God now through the torn body of Jesus Christ. And access to God is now open to everyone no matter what your moral track record looks like. And what that means is that the veil of human conscience has also been breached 
by Jesus. Here's how one theologian put it. He says, Jesus Christ now rules conscience and tells believers, you may believe your conscience that you're a sinner and unworthy of God. But do not believe your conscience when it tells you that you cannot come to God with your sinful human nature and history. Do not believe your conscience more than you believe me. My, my work is superior to the work of conscience. I have split the veil for you so that you come through the merit of my work right into, the, into God's holy presence. Conscience tells you your sin. Believe it. But I tell you your forgiveness of sins. Believe me more. Amen. That's a good theologian. I'm going to combine the fourth and the fifth details together, the quake and the raising. Some of you young people and maybe some of you not so young people here have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. If you have, you'll, you'll remember as the story opens up that the land of this m- mythical land of Narnia was under a curse from the White Witch. Do you, anybody remember what that curse was? Yeah, I'm hearing it. Yeah, always winter but never Christmas. That was the curse. And uh, one day after Peter and Edmund and uh, Susan and Lucy had come into Narnia, they'd met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they were actually hiding, they were in a hideout, uh, afraid of uh, running into the white witch. And they, as they're in their hideout, they hear something and they're listening and they're, and they, oh, oh no, it's the jingling of bells. Well, the white witch goes around on a sleigh and they were thinking it was the white witch, but they sneak out and look over this little rise and who is it? Do you remember? Yeah, Father Christmas, right? What? Christmas was coming in Narnia, which could only mean one thing, right? The spell was dissolving. How is it the Father Christmas shows up? Well, the spell must be dissolving. Why? What, what, what's dissolving the spell? Well, there can only be one reason because Aslan the lion is on the move. Pretty soon the witches, I mean, things start moving really fast, right? And the, and the witches' sleigh gets stuck in the mud because the snow is melting so fast and leaves are sprouting and flowers are blooming. Winter, is, this isn't the thaw, this is, this is spring, right? Oslan's on the move. And as the story goes on, the animals of Narnia that had been turned into these stone statues by the evil power of the, of the white witch came back to life as Aslan breathed on them. Aslan's on the move. Now, I love the story. New Life people know I love C.S. Lewis. But... Um, why I love it is that it, of course, deliberately reflects the gospel, right? And, 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 and the truth of what God does 
as we consider Good Friday. You know, as Jesus dies on the cross, the earth itself shakes. Rocks bust open. And tombs break open. And the corpses of believers are are raised to life and come out and, and ultimately find their way into Jerusalem where they are eyewitnessed. God's on the move. God through Jesus Christ is on the move. This is a reminder, friends, that the cross of Jesus Christ affects everything. Another theologian wrote it well. He said, everything that is and ever was and ever will be, the macro and the micro, the galaxies beyond number and the microbes beyond notice, everything is mysteriously entangled with the cross. You know, the cross is is not only about you being reconciled to God. It is wonderfully about that, but it's not only about that. It's also about God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The whole cosmos, like an inverted pyramid, pivoted on the cross that day on Skull Hill. And through the death of Jesus... God set in motion the setting of all things right again. Does it mean our forgiveness? Absolutely. But it also means the death of death. He's reconciling the whole world. Which means, in the words of the psalmist, right, that someday trees are going to clap their hands and mountains are going to dance. I don't know what that means. But I know it's going to be wonderful. And I know that what we know and love of our world right now, whatever that is, our relationships, the beauty of sunsets, the grandeur of mountains, whatever it is that you love and so much about our home here is, is going to turn out because of the cross to be even greater. There's going to be more to love. And I also know that then, because of the cross, God will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for all those former things will have passed away. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is not about escaping the world, it's about redeeming it and reconciling it back to God. That's what Jesus was doing. Redeeming a people and a world, a cosmos. And just a final note of encouragement for you. That means, believers, that that your life matters not just then, but now. Here and now, 
as a person living by faith in Jesus Christ, your life matters. The work you do here matters. And as you do your work, whatever that is, whatever the Lord has called you to, raising children, teaching school, painting houses, doing tax returns, arguing cases, healing people, whatever it is that God has called you to do and you are doing it for the glory of God, what are you doing? You're cooperating with the Lord in, this, in his great work. That great work that was unleashed at Skull Hill on, good, on that first Good Friday. His good work of, in Jesus' words, I am making all things new. Boy, do we need that message today? As we read the headlines and grieve with our brothers and sisters in Nashville. God is making all things new through Jesus. What a privilege to be caught up in God's great cause as his forgiven and blood-bought people. Amen? Amen. Before David, Pastor David comes up and leads us in communion, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ and for all that happened there on it and for the for the hell we avoid and the judgment we we uh, that is averted because Jesus you took it for us thank you and lord we we bow in humility before the cross it's just it's, just, it's bigger than we can take in we we're grateful for our salvation lord but we man our our minds kind of get bent as we consider that through the cross you're somehow reconciling the whole world to yourself that wonderful work and what it all means but we thank you that we're part of it that you've enlisted us in your cause and and so lord we come as grateful sinners not deserving a place at this table but knowing that our seat was bought with the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. And now, Lord, bless us as we uh, participate together in this sacrament. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.